You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Take a moment and try to remember the last time you were in a conversation with someone who saw things differently than you. It may have been your spouse this morning. Maybe it was a colleague at work. Maybe it was one of your children. You find yourself in this discussion and you find yourself frustrated, don't you? Because everything seems absolutely clear to you. And you're trying to explain it, and, and it doesn't seem like the, the, it just doesn't seem to be getting through. And, and you think, well, maybe I just need to be more articulate, and maybe I need to be more clear. And maybe if I tried a little bit harder, then, then this person would see things my way. Because after all, my way is the right way. <laughs> Willie said amen. Just put that in the record. And the frustration grows because no matter how hard you try, your conversation partner just doesn't see it your way. You begin to realize that this person sees the world differently than you do. It's just this fundamental clash of perspective. There are different assumptions about right and wrong and different presuppositions about which values should govern our decision-making, and, and you're in this place where it's hard to find common ground, and the problem isn't how clear you are. The problem is the fact that the two of you simply see things differently. Perspective matters, doesn't it? Our perspective on any number of things shapes the way we see everything and the way we behave in every occasion, doesn't it? If we've been hurt, oftentimes we we come to new relationships with some caution and some skepticism. We're perhaps less inclined to be transparent or forthright or vulnerable. Because from our perspective, if you do that, you get hurt. We've been formed in a particular religious tradition. And so, so we think we're right. We take it for granted oftentimes. That folks in other denominations or other traditions are deficient in some way. And so we make jokes about who gets to the restaurant first and all those kinds of things. But they're little barbs that indicate some perspective that we're better and they're deficient. We tend to think our perspective is the right perspective. But what if it isn't? What if the assumptions that we bring to the decisions that we make and the behaviors that we choose are faulty in some way? What if we need to see things differently at times? What if we need to look at a situation or the world from a different angle? 
or through a different lens. And if that's the case, how do we do it? We come to Acts 17, and in this text especially, we see different perspectives. We'll see one perspective that we're sympathetic to. And we'll see other perspectives that can be a bit jarring. We get Paul's perspective. Jesus is the Messiah. And we get the perspective of the crowds, the mobs, the rioters who are dragging people into the streets, throwing them into jail, and shouting, these people are turning the world upside down. That's a perspective, isn't it? It's a perspective about which way is right side up? It's a perspective about who calls the shots. It's a perspective of who gets to determine how we conduct ourselves and how we see things. And we might be tempted to think that Luke is putting some truth into the mouth of the mob. Jesus does turn the world upside down, doesn't he? Doesn't Jesus take things and turn them on their head? But perhaps that's not what Luke wants us to see. Perhaps Luke is putting into the mouth of the mob a perspective that needs to be changed. What if the mob needs to see things differently? What if the real perspective, the true perspective is that Jesus didn't come to turn the world upside down. He came to turn it right side up. We assume we come into the world and things are as they should be until we discover they're not. And we find people here who are formed in a society with assumptions and presuppositions and values. And, and all of a sudden there's this weird short guy from Jerusalem Turning everything, from our perspective, upside down. But what if the thing Luke wants us to hear is that the world is already upside down? And we've been formed in an upside down world. And the gospel comes to us not to shore up our upside downness but to turn things back the way they ought to be. Turn the world right side up. How do we find this emerging from this text? Well, we start in Thessalonica with Paul. As is his custom, he goes to the Jewish synagogue. You remember in Philippi, if uh, you were with us when we read the, previous, the last chapter, there, there didn't appear to be a synagogue there, and so Paul had to kind of rethink his typical customary practices, had to go meet with some folks outside the gate who were praying because there didn't appear to be a synagogue. But we get to Thessalonica, we're told there's a Jewish population, and it takes 10 people to form a synagogue, and that's where Paul goes. He goes there three weeks in a row. And while he's there, he's discussing and arguing and debating and, 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 and doing Bible study, and he's, he's teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. He wants to say to his Jewish kinsmen, you've been looking for the Messiah, you've been hoping for the Messiah, you've seen people you thought were the Messiah and they turned out not to be the Messiah, but I want to tell you right now, the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. 
And you can read the whole Old Testament all the way from Adam to Moses to Abraham to David. And everything was pointing forward to the day when Jesus would show up. And yes, He died. And I know you've seen other people who thought they were the Messiah and they died and they turned out to be false Messiah because a false Messiah, a dead Messiah, is a good. But this one... Things turned out a little differently, didn't they? It was necessary for him to die because he's our Paschal Lamb. He's our Passover sacrifice. The consequences of our transgression fall on his shoulders in love for us. But he was spotless. And it isn't fitting for one who's blameless to stay dead. And so God raised him up and exalted him to the throne of heaven where he now sits advancing his kingdom through his church and the gospel proclamation. Some folks were persuaded. They found it compelling. The Spirit of God was at work convicting them of their sin, drawing them to Jesus. Paul says in The first chapter of his letter to the Thessalonians, he says, the first time I showed up, I began to preach the gospel. And when I preached the gospel, I mean, he's talking about this very time. If you read 1 Thessalonians and Acts 17, you kind of see how they go together. He's reflecting on the first time he shows up. He's reflecting on the first time he declared that Jesus is the Messiah in the city of Thessalonica. And he says, when I did that, when I made that proclamation of the gospel, it came not as Plain old words like, hey, did you watch the game last night? Yeah, it was great. He didn't come with plain old words like, hey, what you doing this week? It came like a different message. It came distinctively. It came with power. It came with power in the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, He comes with conviction. Draws people into Jesus. And that's precisely what happened. Some of them responded faithfully. But as we read on, (laughs) not everyone responded positively, did they? And apparently Paul had to go into hiding for a bit to avoid being dragged into the streets. But as you may know, when somebody's intent on dragging someone into the streets, it doesn't necessarily matter whether it's the original person you set out for. So they grabbed this guy, Jason. Let me just read this to you again. Like, let this sink in. Let it sink in what it means to follow Jesus. What it means with regard to loyalty and fidelity and risk. Verse 5, the Jews, that some of them, some believed, and some became jealous. And with the help of some ruffians in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some believers before the authorities, shouting, these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. The charge is striking, isn't it? Because, I mean, how frequently do you think think they got stressed out about what was happening in the synagogue? In the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, 
the synagogue was legal. The Romans knew well enough that it wasn't worth trying to convert the Jewish folk to Roman religion. Let those 15, 20, 30, 40 people gather on their Sabbath day and do what they do and, and just maintain the status quo. As long as they pay their taxes, we don't really care what they do on their holy day. I'm guessing you typically didn't have riots and mobs emerging from synagogue activities. There was space for that in the Roman world. But there's something about the gospel that provoked something, and we find out, I think we find out what it is here. These people have come here turning the world upside down. What is that? In what sense? They're going around talking about how God raised someone from the dead and how he's the Jewish Messiah. What does the emperor care about that? What does Rome care about that? Why does it even matter to the, if, if a handful of apostles run around the empire saying this message to the institution, to the empire, to the senate, to the power, to the Roman forces, to their unrivaled military power. What threat is a random bow-legged apostle? If you read the early church, Paul was supposedly bow-legged. What threat is he? But there is a perceived threat, isn't there? There's a perspective in play that says whatever it is, this guy's doing is dangerous. At the highest levels. What's so dangerous? Keep reading. Verse 6, these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. Jason has entertained them as guests. And they are acting, here's the crucial piece, they are acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying there's another king named Jesus. Let that sink in for just a second. They are acting contrary to the decrees of the state, saying there is another king named Jesus. When was the last time you heard someone respond to the gospel with language like that? Like, what does Paul have to be saying for someone to say, wait, you think this, the emperor isn't the king? Like, is he giving them some sort of like, Jesus is your personal private savior, and so you can go in your closet and read your Bible and never have that change your life or engage in any way outside of your just personal experience? I don't think that the empire would be worried about that, do you? I mean, I think that's why they weren't worried about the synagogue. There's a few people over there saying their prayers and leaving us alone. What's going on here? Like, what is Paul saying? And we should already know, I think, because it's captured in this thing that Luke tells us Paul said in the synagogue. Jesus is the Messiah. And he argued with them from the Scriptures, like he's reading his Bible. And if you read the Old Testament, you find out about the Messiah. 
And you find out that from the Jewish perspective, when the Messiah shows up, he's not just the Jewish Messiah, he's Lord of the nations. If you've been doing your devotionals in the Psalms lately, you may remember Psalm 2. I look at my anointed one. I look at the Messiah and say, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, your footstool. Ask of me and everything you see, every nation I will give to you as a gift because you're my son and I love you. And that is one text out of dozens of texts across the Old Testament that says the Jewish Messiah, when He shows up, isn't a private thing that happens in Jerusalem within the borders of the Holy Land. The Jewish Messiah is king over all the nations. And I wonder how deeply that affects the way we articulate the gospel. Because here's how we frequently articulate the gospel. Jesus loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. He died you. He wants you. He died for you so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you can get saved when you pray this prayer and go to heaven when you die. Amen. How many times have we heard the gospel announced like that? You want to know what no one will ever say if we preach the gospel that way? These people say there's another king named Jesus. We preach the gospel that way, no one ever says this. Because as long as the gospel is a matter of my private spirituality, it's not anyone's problem. Now what would provoke someone to say something like this? God has shown up. He has sent His Son. And the rulers of the world raged against him, and the empire used its representatives to put him to death. But God raised him up and gave him the name that is above every name and seated him at the highest throne so that every name that is named, the name of Jesus is above them. Every name. And yes, He died to rescue you. And yes, He died so that your sin could be forgiven. But it wasn't so that you could just sort of retreat and do your private spirituality thing. It was so that you could become His representatives to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth declaring, there's another king and his name is Jesus. And if you start talking like that, chances are somebody might riot. Because every one of us would rather be king than Jesus. And so when Jesus starts showing up and says, I'm your Lord. I'm your king. And there's a big me that has to yield his throne. And that is the hardest thing to do. Who sits on the throne of my life? Who commands 
my world? Who shapes my perspectives? Who can reveal to me that the world, the way I want to govern it, and the life, my life, the way I want to run it, is really upside down? Because everything's upside down until Jesus turns it right side up. My world is upside down. Things are out of joint. Things are out of order until Jesus is on the throne, both in my life and for the world. And Him taking the throne in my life isn't about me exclusively. It's not just about, hey, there's a bunch of, there's a million people out there and they all need Jesus to be their Lord. That's true, but it's not the whole story. There are millions and millions of people who need Jesus to be their Lord, but not so they can just kind of hang out until He takes them off so that they can become His body in this place, become His representatives in this world, become His new creation that runs into the darkness full speed ahead, carrying the light of His perfect love. And the good news that the world finally has a king who loves it and isn't out to manipulate it for his own power and advantage. When we read Acts, we get a new perspective on the gospel itself. A new perspective on the mission of the church. A new perspective on what it means for Jesus to be our Messiah. And it means that He is the absolute, unqualified ruler of all things. And the mission of His church isn't to sweet-talk people into the kingdom. doesn't mean you you need to be unkind. But it does mean it's not a negotiation. The mission of the church is to faithfully proclaim the gospel of King Jesus and His faithfulness and His self-giving love revealed most perfectly and most beautifully when His skin was pierced and His blood flowed. He is the one who says, I am your King And I love you more than you can imagine. Because you don't suffer for people you don't love. You don't suffer for people you don't love. What kind of king does that? The emperor certainly isn't that kind of king. He has as many attendance as necessary to make sure he never suffers. Make sure the masses serve his whim. But the real king, the true king, suffers for his people. On behalf of his people. On behalf of the world. On behalf of sinners. That other kingdom, that Roman Empire kingdom, and it's really just like all the other kingdoms, whether it's 1st century or 21st century, That kingdom is the world upside down. Let's create an institution to get what we want when we want it. Jesus turns the world right side up with a king whose rule 
is marked by perfect, other-oriented, suffering love. And my fear, friends, my fear is that we are too easily shaped by the false perspective. I'll give you an illustration. I lost my phone this morning. I have no idea where it is right now. If you find it, I need it. And that's the problem. Because I have this anxiety. It's not in my pocket. And that means it has control over me. And it has shaped my sensibilities and my perspectives in ways that as long as I got it, I don't even notice. I'm going to share the sermon on Facebook. How am I going to know if somebody has a prayer request? Those are just excuses for all the, like, it just, we're shaped by these things that we all carry around and feed us information constantly. It's constant. We are shaped by forces that work on us every day and we don't notice it because we swim in those waters. And we're just used to it. And they are forces that come with political agendas, and they are forces that come with cultural agendas, and they are forces that come with corporate agendas, and they shape our perspectives. They shape the way we see the world. And it's only until we are unwillingly jarred from that that we go, oh man, this thing is working on me in a way I rarely notice. And if that's the case, how much, how frequently are my perspectives shaped by that and other things? There was a study that came out just in the last couple of years about how social media, particularly Facebook, cultivates antagonism. You're probably like, we needed a study to figure that out? Well, we have one. Because the artificial intelligence, right, grabs the most ferocious things and dumps them in your feed. And you might be thinking, I don't have Facebook, I ain't worried about that. Well, your children do and your grandchildren may. If it's not that, it's something else. And even if they don't, everyone else in the world does. And so when it's campaign season, we found that if we go after those aggressive emotions like anger, people are more likely to click. And if they're more likely to click, they're more likely to stay on the platform longer, and they're more likely to see the advertisements. And then we get paid. There are forces in our world that act on us and drive us and shape us. And I started to say form us, but I think I should probably say deform us. 
deform us. And they condition us to live in a world that's upside down. They condition us to live in a world that's out of joint. They make it a lot harder to be a peacemaker, which is precisely the sort of person Jesus said would be blessed or happy. Do you know that with the Beatitudes? You could blessed are those. You could actually translate it. Happy are those. Happy are the peacemakers. Because I'm telling you, when we're digging into that artificial intelligence that's feeding us all that hate and antagonism all the time, and it's not your fault, it's their fault, and obviously they're wrong, and obviously you're right, and obviously everybody's out to get everybody, and you just got to get crazy or else you won't, the world will be over. It won't be. You know why? Because Jesus Christ reigns on the throne of heaven and he is working all things according to his purposes. We get sucked in and we get driven by this thing, a robot that is controlling us. Think about the last time you were reading one of those articles or watching one of those videos. Probably didn't feel very happy, did you? Probably didn't feel very blessed. Because when powerful forces and companies are out to get us, they play on the emotions that make us more angry, not more happy. They play after what Paul calls the works of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. And they condition us to live in a world that is upside down. And we need the gospel ourselves as much as anyone else does. We need the gospel to take our upside down lives and our upside down world and turn them right side up. That's why we call it conversion. (laughs) Because we need something to be converted, turned over, flipped around. And made right. That's what happens when you walk with Jesus. He sanctifies you. He makes you whole. He gives you his life. He gives you his joy. He gives you his wholeness. He gives you freedom. Freedom not to do whatever you want, but freedom to do what you ought to do. Freedom to embody his character. Freedom to courageously declare his gospel. Freedom to be the kind of person whose life and voice declares there's another king and his name is Jesus. And I wonder sometimes, like if we're going to kind of take this and apply it or appropriate it or transport like we don't have a Roman Empire anymore, do we? But I wonder if we could say, you know, there's another king besides Facebook and there's another king besides TikTok and there's another king besides Insta, which is really just Facebook. Or as they call it now, officially, meta. That sounds very kingly, doesn't it? Above everything. There's another king. And his name is Jesus. And the kingdoms of this world cultivate fear and anger and sorrow 
and opposition in the king named Jesus cultivates love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, and happiness. So the question is, which world are we going to live in? Which world are we going to live in? The upside-down world or the right-side-up world? The world where somebody's out to control us or the world where someone wants to set us free? Say, well, when you put it that way, preacher, the answer is obvious, isn't it? (laughs) How do we do it, though? Because how do I break loose? I, I, I feel it. What do I do? Well, Paul went to Berea next, didn't he? When he got to Berea, he found some people with some practices and some habits that would be helpful to us. That very night, verse 10, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue. We're like, that's standard operating procedure for Paul and his colleagues. Verse 11, these Jews were more receptive than than those in Thessalonica. And here's the key thing. They welcomed the message very eagerly and, get this, they examined the Scriptures every day to see whether these things were true. How do I get myself out of upside-down world into right-side-up world? Or how do I allow myself to be brought is probably a better way to put it. Well, the Bereans didn't just invent on this day, let's go look at our Bibles and see what it has to say. This is a group of people who were habitually in, in, in giving themselves to the examination of the Scriptures. They had devoted themselves to the Word of God. And when Paul showed up preaching the gospel of a crucified Messiah, counterintuitive as it might seem to them, they said, you know what? Let's examine the Scriptures. Let's read our Bibles. And I don't want to oversimplify this process because there are forces at work here. And the forces that attempt to condition us into the world upside down are powerful. But they are not more powerful than the Word of God. The Word that gives life. Jesus says, if I set you free, you are free indeed. And so, I find there's no need to reinvent the wheel. (laughs) How do I get free? I run to Jesus. And how does Jesus make himself known? He does it in a book. A book that tells us how he came to turn the world right side up. Because after all, Jesus is the guy we discover in the Gospels who shows up and doesn't go to the religious leaders. He goes to the religious outcasts. He doesn't get a bunch of PhDs together to lead his church. He finds a bunch of fishermen, blue-collar kind of guys, working down with there with their hands. Most folks would say, we got to get all the 
educated and the smart people and the credentialed people together. We're going to start a movement. Jesus says, I'll take the guys who know what real life is like and how hard it can be. And the more education they got, I probably will have to unteach them some stuff anyway. So let's just start. <laughs> let's just start right here. This is the Jesus who says, like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. This is the Jesus who says, like, you're worried about murdering people. I'm concerned about the anger in your heart. World upside down or world right side up? And when we come to the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, and if we come frequently and if we come often, we will find that our perspective will begin to be shaped by the Kingdom of God by the values of the kingdom of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by His grace. We'll find in ourselves a distaste for the world that functions upside down. It won't happen the first day. It won't happen maybe the first week. It may take some time. But that's how habits work, don't they? Can we be the sort of people whose minds and hearts and wills, posture, character is shaped by the world right side up? The world that Jesus is making. There's only one way that happens. And the Lord Jesus has given us that way. Scripture says we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have His Word and we have His Spirit. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.